chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, found on page 1537 of the Pew Bible. And the second is 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, found on page 1853. Here's the reading from Mark. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became a dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Please turn to page 1853. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because that I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Thanks, Libby. Hey, everyone. So as we talked about a few weeks ago, we're going to have a, a memory passage for each of the series. Most of them are going to be one verse, but this one is our one for the year. This is going to be over the whole year, and it's on this card that should have been in your bulletin when you came in this morning. So we're going to do the memory verse together. Okay, and if you don't have it all memorized since we've only had it one week, that's okay. But next week, Jill's going to start taking out words. And um, so you might want to keep the card if you follow behind. First, Second Peter 1, 3-11. 
His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've handed these out for two weeks. We probably won't hand them out every week because it's in color and it's kind of expensive. So I hope you'll keep it. Put it in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, the one in the pew in front of you is your Bible. Please take it and put that in there so that you'll have it. And um, you're going to be glad that you, you know it. Now, <clears throat> there is, um, there's a saying that's very well known in our culture um, that is attributed to Francis Bacon because surely nobody ever said it before him in the 1600s or whatever, that, that knowledge is power. And there's all kinds of memes and tropes on this that people have gone to, like putting it together with other well-known sayings, like Lord Acton's power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and you put those together and knowledge is evil, which is fun. Or how people often use knowledge being power. Knowledge is power, the power to make other people feel stupid, right? Or some people just like a pictorial representation of knowledge being power, right? But for about 20 years uh, in my mom's sixth grade classroom, this saying with another sentence added to it um, hung there for all of her students. And it was this version. Knowledge is power, but only if you can remember it. She was big on repetition, if you can imagine. Um, in this passage of First Peter, if you read it carefully, in the first paragraph especially, he says, um, he says, I am writing, right? So he says all the things that we went over last week. He says, I'm writing this so that I will always remind you, right? So as to refresh your memory, so that basically, he says, so that after I'm dead, you will always remember. And then later on, at, when you get to the end of the, of the book, which is like three pages, right? You get to the end of the concluding chapter in chapter 3, and he says this, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you, right? There's First Peter and Second Peter, get it? I have written both of them as what? Reminders for the purpose of to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your holy apostles. Right, you see, do you see the repetition here? Remind, stimulate your memory so that you'll remember. I write this as reminders so that you'll recall. The focus of this passage, and really the whole book of 2 Timothy, is that he wants us to realize that only memory can keep us firmly established in the truth. 
In, in verse, in that first, first verse of this passage, he says, I'm writing these things to remind you, and you know what the next phrase is? Though you already know them and are already firmly established in them. So he, he says right away, I'm telling you stuff you already know and you're already firmly established in. But I'm telling you again, because there's something about human frailty and human remembrance and how we live in this world and in this body and in this condition, that even when you're, you may already be firmly established in something, that doesn't mean you're going to be firmly established in it tomorrow. There's a fundamental set of repetitions. That is, memory is what keeps us firmly established in wholesome thinking. That what he says in verse 3. And that to remain or be firmly established in that wholesome thinking, in those foundational truths, has to be continually stimulated through the disciplines of memory. Right? Now, there's, there's two ways, there's two things, therefore, that this passage covers. The, the first, the second paragraph in this passage says that the truths of the gospel, the truths that we believe as, as Christians, are themselves firmly established truths. He says they really couldn't be given to us in more certain ways. They're not speculative. They're extraordinarily firmly established. But what he's implying in what he says in the rest of the passage, he says, you can believe in a firmly established truth and not be firmly established in that truth. The truth can be firmly established. That doesn't mean you're firmly established in that truth or with that truth. And both have to happen. You can be firmly established in something that's not true, and that won't really help you that much, unless it's accidentally right about some things, maybe. Or you can believe something that's completely true, but not really be established in it, so it doesn't do you any good because you can't remember it. Because knowledge is only power if you can remember it. And so the Apostle Peter was very clear that he just felt like as long as he was alive, he was going to keep reminding them of things they already knew. Because what he knew is it didn't matter how firmly the truth was established. If the people of God weren't continually remembering it so that they could stay firmly established in it, right? So, two things. Firmly established truth and being established. One of the first things that he makes clear is, is that he's, he's saying these truths, the truths of the gospel, that lead us to believe everything we need for godliness we've been given, are themselves very firmly established. They're not speculative. They're not uncertain. The specific ones that he talks about in this passage are that death isn't the end, that our deaths happen under God's providence, they're not random, and that Christ will return in power and glory to be king and judge. Now, there's more than that. These are the three that he references. Okay? So he says, right, I'm going to leave this tent of the body and I'm going to depart. All of that is alluding to stuff they already know about what Peter believes about death because of what Jesus taught and did in relationship to death. That death isn't the end. Now, um, for a lot of people, especially people in modern societies who aren't around death very much, our main experience of feeling the futility of death is when we watch movies. Now, for most people, it's from actually seeing people die and seeing dead people. There's something horrific about seeing the life gone out of a body of someone that you knew. And to recognize that something profound is missing. 
in that there's, there's, that person is still there, there's their body, and yet they're not present. It's over. In, in film, you get this a lot where people are just kind of like killed, and it's, it follows kind of the same philosophy that you actually find parroted in Ecclesiastes that a living dog is better than a dead lion. The living are always categorically better off than the dead. That's actually not a Christian view. That's one that Solomon is talking about that people believe in, but not one that he actually believes in. There's a way in which the living are better off than the dead, but there's ways in which that's not true because death isn't the end. And not only that, Peter is saying, but his death, though it's going to be terrible, falls entirely under the providence of God. One of the interesting things about Peter's life is that God saves him from a ridiculous death by government, right? After James is killed, Peter's thrown into prison. This is in the book of Acts in the Bible. And an angel comes and lets him out of prison. And everybody in the church was so sure that he was going to die that when he showed up at the prayer meeting, they were like, oh, you must be Peter's ghost. Because the only way you could be here is if you're already dead. Which is kind of funny because they were praying for him. So there have been moments in the church that have not prayed in faith, apparently. But the point is, is that the funny thing about this is that in John 21, Jesus tells Peter basically how he's going to die. There's no dates or anything, but he's like, basically, they're going to kill you. And it's funny that Jesus saves Peter from being killed by government so that sometime later he can be killed by government. The fact that God saved Peter from his first possible death didn't change the fact that everybody dies a horrible death. Everybody dies an ignominious death. Everybody's death is terrible. Everybody's death feels like it's hollowed out and random. It, it always feels like this sort of stung tragedy. And yet what Peter is saying, though he knows he's going to die soon, is that isn't actually true. He was going to be crucified upside down and thrown in a gut pile of massacred humans under the Roman government. There's going to be nothing special or sacred about his death from the perspective any human could see. And yet what he knows is that death is not the end, that no death happens, and nothing actually happens outside of the providence of God and his sovereignty, and that both of those things find their ultimate meaning in the fact that Jesus is going to return in power and glory as king, as the resurrected Savior. Now, and on the basis of that, he gets later in the book, there's a point where he's talking about the return of Jesus again, and he says, knowing that Jesus is going to return as king and judge the living and the dead, how then should we live? And his conclusion is, is that if you understand these three doctrines, you'll understand the purpose of the first passage in First Peter, the one we're memorizing. Because if you understand what's happening, what our lives mean, where we're going, what God is doing, what happens in his sovereignty, you'll realize that the purpose of our lives is to be like Jesus, to be godly, to grow in the character of Christ, to be ready for him when he returns, to be to the point emotionally where we can rejoice that his kingdom comes in, not be terrified or angry about it, and therefore can lead us to believe that we have everything we need for godliness. Now, he says that all of these truths— are based on the firmest foundation that can be possible for the kinds of truths that they are. Historical truths, by definition, come to us by testimony. Right? Anything that's already happened, you can't prove it by redoing it. The minute 
or the moment, or maybe this was before time, so I don't have a non-temporal word for this. But when God decided that his truth was going to be revealed in time-space history, in a person who would atone for sins by living, dying, rising, and ascending. The minute he concluded that he would bring about redemption through, a, through the man, Jesus Christ, we were going to receive that truth not through a scientific experiment because it would be by definition non-repeatable because it's history. And therefore, the, the most sure way you can receive anything historically is by testimony. And that's what we have, right? We have testimony. We have people who are eyewitnesses and who told us these things happened, and on the basis of that, we can believe them. Now, Peter contrasts this with what he calls cleverly invented stories. The original language word behind stories is, is mythoi, the word we get myth from, right? Mythology. And what he's basically saying is, is there's, there's, there's kind of two ways we think things about spiritual realities, right? One is, is we take some stuff we think we know, and we kind of like rethink it and kind of speculate and sort of figure out. And the thing, the thing that most—and I'm not just saying this is true of people who aren't Christians. I'm saying this is true of everybody. If you think of what you believed about a lot of things before you were a believer, or a lot of your speculative beliefs now— the thing that makes them compelling isn't that they're firmly founded in eyewitness testimony that they happened. The thing that makes them compelling is that they're very clever, right? They're built on something. You've got kind of a compelling logic. It's related to certain speculations. It, like, it makes sense to you. It might make sense to other people. There's lots of things I believed before I came to the God's written word and had my— I thought I was very clever. I thought most of my views were, were real clever. And then I had to adjust them as the testimony eyewitnesses said, no, it's like this. And whether it's from a, a non-Christian perspective or whether it's some of our own little Christian speculations where we want to add things to what we're actually told in Scripture because they answer questions we want answered that the Bible may not answer or because we want it to say things maybe it doesn't say or because we want to believe things that the Bible actually says even the opposite of. Sometimes we can come up with very clever speculations, very clever stories that we make up. But what Peter's saying is, guys, those are mythologies. If you want to be firmly founded in the truth, you have to start with a truth that is firmly founded. And there's no more firmly founded truth, he's saying, than the eyewitness testimonies of what is actually true about Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this is the thing that he says is part of this eyewitness testimony isn't just Jesus was born or lived or died or rose from the dead. He actually claims that we have eyewitness testimony of something that hasn't happened yet. Did you notice that? He, he, says, he says, we know this because I have been an eyewitness of its truth. And he says— what we didn't make up stories about, what we believed based on what we saw, is the return of Jesus. Isn't that what he says? That hasn't happened yet. But you see the argument he makes? He says this. When Jesus comes back, he says Jesus is going to return in power and in glory, right? In power and in glory. He says there was one time— in all the life of Jesus, all of his teachings, all of his works, everything that he did, even in his death, and even in his resurrection. You'll, you, 
People are terrified to see Jesus alive after he's dead, but they're not terrified by what he looks like. In fact, in most cases, they don't even know it's Jesus until he's like, hey, it's me. I'm Jesus. But you see, in this passage that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then Peter brings back up again here, it says they didn't even know what to say because they were so terrified. Like, like Peter actually tells Mark to write in Mark's gospel that he said something really stupid in the stupid thing he actually said. How do you like that for historical accuracy? So Mark, as you're writing this gospel, I said the dumbest thing. I said, hey Jesus, why don't we build three houses for you and Moses and Elijah? Because it's good that we're here. <laughs> the reason I said that idiotic thing was because I was so terrified. I didn't know what to do. So Peter's like me when he's nervous. He talks apparently, right? But you see, the, the point is, is what he's saying is, there was a moment, only one, but there was one moment that had three eyewitnesses when Jesus was on this earth in which he was revealed in his majesty. It says in the text, if you look at the Bible, in his majesty. What is majesty? Right? It's the embodiment of power and glory in a way you can see it. Right? If you see God in his majesty, you see him in his power and his glory. Does that make sense? And so he says, when we were on the mountain, we saw Jesus in his majesty. We saw a glimpse of him in the state of his return. And in that sense, we have been eyewitnesses of the state in which he will return. We have seen King Jesus. We have seen the Son of Man. We have seen him in the state he will be in. We've seen his majesty. That is his power and his glory. And so on that basis, we know that the coming Jesus that has promised, we have seen him. He exists. And we have a three-time confirmed eyewitness testimony assuring you of that fact. Now, the reason why Peter is saying this is because the people in this church are dealing with false teachers, people who are coming and telling them that what they believe about the gospel isn't true. And so he's trying to help them see the difference between speculative faith— I'm clever. This must be true about the world. It's the sort of thing like, well, if God is loving, then whatever, then we must all have some kind of eternal life, and that eternal life must be great, and we can derive that and know it just from the first premise that God is loving. doesn't follow. God might be a lot of other things too. Your definition of love and his definition of love might not be the same. Right? There are a lot of things that we speculate, and Peter's like, okay, can we just start with the stuff that Jesus explicitly did and said, and that we were eyewitnesses of? And can we build from that? Even in theology books, oftentimes you have the text of Scripture, and then you have assumptions or conclusions on that basis, and then assumptions and conclusions on that basis— and then new assumptions and conclusions on this basis, and then more assumptions and conclusions on this basis, and then you have Christians oftentimes that only talk about this stuff and don't really even want to talk about this stuff because it's kind of boring. I've read that before. You see, what Peter's saying is that's incredibly dangerous spiritually. Start with the eyewitness stuff. Start with the stuff that we're assured of. Start with the stuff that's built on the most firm foundation possible. And then, yeah, you can build from there to a certain extent, but you need to be careful. Right? The reason for that is, is that Jesus did not give us a derived religion. One that was concocted, thought up, philosophized, logically proven, mystically received, experienced through enlightenment. 
right? Christ, the Christian faith is a re- revealed faith. Jesus did something. He spoke and showed himself, and he left eyewitnesses to specifically tell us what he did and said and accomplished. Now, sometimes you get the scientific, what you might call the scientistic objection to this, which is people saying, yeah, but it was all bound up with miracles, and I don't care how many eyewitnesses you have, you can't have miracles. Miracles are a breaking of scientific law, and that can't happen. John Lennox has a really fun response to this because one of the things that he argues, which is in fact true, is that you can't even have a miracle unless you have scientific laws. Because you wouldn't know it was a miracle. Like the thing has to not be able to happen according to scientific laws for it to be a miracle. Otherwise, it's not a miracle. Here's, here's, here's one of the things he's illustrated. He's like, imagine you went on a trip and you went, you, you went into your hotel room. You're the only person to sit there. You lock your door. And so you put your cash that's in your pocket in the drawer before you go to sleep, right? And you have, you have 450s. You got 200 bucks, right? So you put it in the drawer. You close the drawer and you go to sleep. You wake up in the morning. You open the drawer and there's a $50 bill in there. Just one, right? Now, there's two possible op- options of what happened while you were asleep, Right? One is that the scientific laws of mathematics and arithmetic have changed while you were asleep. And when you went to sleep, $200 equaled $200, but now it equals 50. Right? Or secondly, somebody came and took your money. Right? Now listen, you might be resistant philosophically at this moment, but I guarantee you if you woke up in a hotel room and there was $50 where you put 200 you would conclude the latter. And the reason you would conclude the latter is because you know the scientific laws of mathematics did not change. And because you know they did not change, you know somebody came and took your money. And one of the reasons why—and so therefore, the question is, we can be sure someone took your money on the basis of how good an eyewitness you are. How sure you can be that you put in $200 and there's 50 left. And if I believe you that there was $200 and there's 50s left, and if I believe in scientific laws, then I know there's a thief. And similarly, if I know that there are laws about people coming back to life, that scientifically they just don't do that. And if I have numerous eyewitnesses, 1 Corinthians says more than 500, who saw Jesus alive, I have a choice to make. And the Bible claims over and over that it is more rational to believe the eyewitnesses and to believe we have a miracle than to disbelieve all of the trustworthy eyewitnesses because we won't believe in a miracle. And on the basis of that, the Bible claims over and over, including many times in 2 Peter, that the truths of the gospel are not just true, they are firm, they are knowable, they are knowable enough that you are obligated to believe them And they are so obligatory that if you don't believe them, it is blameworthy. I'm going to go on to the second thing here. Now, if it's true that there are a certain group of truths that are foundationally true, and they are true, and they're believable, and they're based on the best possible evidence, and we can know that they're sure, and we can see them as foundational truths, that doesn't mean that we're founded in them. Does that make sense? We have to do that. And because of that, what Peter's reminding us is, is that no matter how mature you and I think we are in our spiritual growth, no matter how formed we are, we think we are in these truths, we need to keep remembering and keep reminding and keep relearning because there is no human being who doesn't need the recurrence of memory 
Even people who have, who have um, eidetic memories and can remember everything they've ever seen doesn't mean that their memory and mind calls up what is necessary at the key moment. You have to know the truth, and then you have to have the internal mental training to call up the right truth at the right moment. You could, you could define the kind of memory I'm talking about as sacred memory, and it would be something like this. Remembering firm truths for wholesome thinking, chapter 3, in order to remain faith-filled in the pursuit of godliness, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, through gracious striving, which is something I talked about in my sermon last week if you weren't here. Now, look at this picture for a minute. Now, all of us have to deal with the fact that memory is basically imperfect. Almost everybody, no matter how young you are and no matter how smart you are, you have to deal with the fact that your memory is not as good as you wish it was. I, sometimes I, I'm so frustrated over all the things I have forgotten that I knew I knew that I don't know, and, or even words, like I'm 39 now, I'm like trying to call up words, and my facility just isn't there because I haven't used that word very much. And even stuff that we've like, we've just seen sometimes, we can't even remember. Details would be so obvious for us if, if we could see it again. For example, this is participatory. Who is wearing a striped shirt? No, you gotta have names here. Sorry? Matt? Mike? Bill? Mike, Matt, and Bill. Whose hairstyles were the same? Ryan and Matt. That's right. Ryan and Matt. Good. Somebody took a picture while I was up there. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Who doesn't have short sleeves? Who doesn't have short sleeves? Mike and Matt. And who has the V-neck shirt or cardigan? Ted? You're admiring that, weren't you? And? And Mike. In case you need to look at it again. Right, we just saw that. It's in there somewhere. Like, you know it's in there. You can't get at it. Right? And the, the problem is, is that memory is just kind of like that. But in addition to that, there's not just— um, the functional problem of memory. It's broader than that. So did I give you any of those answers? And you go, oh yeah, after I told you, right? Okay, well, not in the short-term memory one, but oftentimes, like, if I'll, if I'll say, hey, um, this is true, and, and like, it's a Bible verse, and you're like, oh yeah, I know that Bible verse. One of the problems with us actually allowing ourselves to be reminded of as much as we need to be reminded of is the idea that we know something when we're really just familiar with something. You can think that because if I say something, you're like, oh, I'm familiar with that. I know what that means. That therefore you know something about it. But mastery, real knowledge, is when you can call up something when you need it without anybody telling you. You understand? And that is not something that we have a lot of. There's um, a book, one of the books that I've had the staff read in the past, Sticky Church, is by a pastor in California, Larry Osborne. And he writes this about— Knowledge. I want you to just listen to this. And this is, this is, this book is one of the reasons why we do sermon-based small groups. I know sometimes people think that the reason we discuss the sermon and the biblical text from the sermon in small groups is because I think that I'm brilliant and everything I say is worth discussing. And that's true, but that's not the reason why we do um, sermon-based small groups. And I resisted it for a long time just to avoid that. But the reason is because we need the repetition. 
If you don't have enough repetition, you don't get knowledge and you never get mastery. Listen to how Osborne explains it. Still another way in which we use sermon-based small groups is to make me a better preacher can be found in how they help people move beyond mere exposure to actual knowledge. One reason I want my messages to be memorable is that I want people to apply the important spiritual truths and doctrines of the faith. I know that if I can change the way people think, it will change the way they live. But every time I teach, I have a significant roadblock to overcome. It's our natural tendency to confuse familiarity with knowledge. Basically, there are four stages of knowledge. The first is what I call the inspired stage. That's what happens when I hear a new truth or principle that rings true. I'm inspired and challenged, and I go home thinking, boy, I learned something today. The second stage is familiarity. It's a stage where I hear something and go, oh yeah, I remember that. It's not particularly exciting, but if it fits with where I'm living and the issues that I'm facing, it can be challenging still and send me home with the feeling that I'm glad I came. The third stage is the bored stage. That's when I've heard it all before and I feel like there's nothing more to learn about it. And it's the stage where most communicators dread and try to avoid as much as possible. But it's not real knowledge yet. It's only deep familiarity. And it's the stage at which most of us bail out. I've only reached the knowledge stage when I know the principle or truth before someone brings it up and reminds me. When I can state it or use it without being prompted. But here's the problem. Because we hate so badly to bore people, most teachers don't repeat anything often enough to move beyond the deep familiarity of boredom to the point of true knowledge. And that leaves our people with lots of things they just kind of know. Now, let me talk to kids, especially teenagers, for a minute. You know where I'm going with this? When your parents are boring you with a lecture, consider that the reason they are boring you with this lecture that you've heard all before is because you have not demonstrated mastery of the knowledge they are trying to impart to you. You may be have been inspired by it the first time. You may have been familiar with it in subsequent renditions, and now you are decisively bored by it. But the reason they are telling you may not be that you've mastered it. It may be because you're bored by it and yet not have mastered it. And they may be doing exactly what they should be right now. As your pastor. Same thing. Um, I, have, I have ADD, and I was always bored in school, in every class I've ever been in, just about. And I'm always terrified of boring people. It's like my biggest fear. Uh, and so that's why I'm like this. And you probably realize, uh, it's why I talk fast. It's why I try to just cram all this content in. Um, and you probably realize that I will say, teach the same thing, like a couple weeks apart in just different words, with just a different story. It's the exact same truth. And I'm intentionally trying to change up how I'm teaching it so you won't be like, I already know this, and be bored. But I know that the truth has to be repeated because if we don't get to mastery, when something happens to you, it won't call up. And if, and if the, whatever truth Jesus is teaching us, if we haven't mastered it, when life happens, it's worthless to you. 
because it has to call up automatically. And here's one of the things you need to realize too, is that it gets worse than that. Because the function of memory is part of our slower thinking. It's, it's part of where we do our wholesome thinking that Peter's saying he's trying to, he's trying to trigger. And there is another part of us that the Bible um, refers to as the flesh, which is basically our fast, instinctual thinking that's all messed up because of sin. And when we experience stuff, our flesh is going to have a reaction to it. And the thing about reaction is he's not afraid to budge in line. Reaction just budges in line. Like, so memory is here, like trying to figure out what the right truth is, going through his truth file, and, and reaction is like, hey, let's get angry! He's just, he doesn't have a file. Reaction has a bag, and he just pulls out the top thing on it. Oh, 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 that person attacked us. Let's get angry. Oh, let's be snide. Oh, wait, let's throw things. Wait, the F word is in here somewhere, right? Like, and so what, what memory has to do is memory's got to like find the right file and at the same time grab a reaction by the shirt collar and like pull him out of line because he's going to get to the microphone. Right? And you see, in order to do that, memory's got to be like spot on. Because mem memory's got to like grab this while he's pulling this and be like, nope, this is what we're doing. And you see, that's what the process of godliness looks like. It starts with like, oh, reaction's already the mic. Let me find the file. Let me find the— Oh, okay, okay. Wait, wait, wait. I want to talk too. Right? That's when like you're screaming at your spouse and then you realize you're being an idiot. Right? Or you're doing something totally wrong and you realize like in the middle and you're like, oh, what am I doing? And then, right, because memory just got there with the folder. Right? And you're like, uh, yeah. And the Holy Spirit's like, yeah. This, right? And your conscience is like, yeah, memory, listen. And you're like, oh. And then you have to repent and believe, right? You have to be like, oh, reaction. Um, so here's what we're doing, right? I'm sorry. Can we talk about this again? What I did was wrong, right? Then the next step of sanctification is like, memory like gets him before he gets to the microphone. Like you still want to yell. You still want to say that. You still want to smile that way. But like memory's like, oh, I got you. And like it's a fight for a while. And like you're, you're like, this is when you look confused. Right? You don't respond right. You're trying not to react. You're kind of like— Right? Because inside, memory and reaction are like having a knife fight, right? While memory's trying to pull a file, it's hard work. And you're just trying to not plug in the microphone, right? The next step is where reactions run to the microphone and memory's like— Sit. Right? And— as sanctification progresses, like, it reaction runs up and you just hand him a paper, and he's on board. Over time, sanctification can change our feelings, our responses, our reactions. It takes, it takes time. But ultimately, memory and reaction can get on pretty much the same page in a lot of areas. But only if we are incredibly grounded, firmly founded in the truth, stimulated by reminders into wholesome thinking, so that our memory is full of the eyewitnessed, grounded, divine truths that fill out the gospel, so that we can have faith to really believe and trust God in what's supposed to happen in us.
So that if we start with that faith, we can, to quote verse 5, add to faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and then to knowledge self-control, and to self-control temperance, and to that godliness, and brotherly love, and ultimately full-blown true love. And it comes through this process of being gotten a hold of in our thinking, in our memory, in our, in our hearts, in our consciences, and that slowly being able to stop our reactions and change how we feel and think and ultimately change how we react so that Christ can be formed in us, so that we can, we can act like we're actually participating in the divine nature so that it actually keeps us from being entangled in the corruption of the world. Does that make sense? Um, this last week, I was, um, we were having staff prayer time, and I tried to, like, bring some kind of, like, deep pastoral question to create some prayer requests that are focused on spiritual growth rather than just whatever's going on in somebody's life. And so I said, hey, so we talked about worldliness last week, how the symptoms of worldliness are, um, are feeling you're like your faith is getting choked and smothered, um, finding no peace, but really finding an increase of anxiety about things that you should be able to trust God for. And thirdly, a, res- a growing resentment towards God, right? Those are the three things I talked about last week. And it was amazing because people on our staff team, and these are really godly folks. I mean, the staff of this church, present company excluded, um, is, I mean, they're just really godly people, especially some of them in their 20s. For their age, I mean, I'm, I'm beyond impressed. And yet, they started telling, they started sharing what reaction says, right? One person who's really analytical said, I'm always waiting for things to get worse. I always believe things are going to get worse. I just don't believe God's going to do good things. I believe God doesn't owe me anything, and things can get bad, and so things are probably just going to get worse. And I know that's not true, but that's how I feel. And then another person, and I feel so diminished by my physical limitations and the pain I have constantly in my life. And then this, and then that, and then this. I mean, for me, I get these—I get sick a lot. I get these sinus infections that bring me down about 40%. I just feel diminished, and I can't— get healed of this. Doctors can't help me. Um, I'm allergic to most of the antibiotics that would help me. It's like this—it's really—it feels awful. And yet this week I was talking with somebody about it, and while I was starting to talk about how reaction feels, about how diminished I feel and how broken that makes me and so on, I, I was—I had been praying about it. I said, you know, I, I wonder if, if um, this is one of the means by which God is going to make me a more merciful person eventually because this is one of the only major pains in my life, and pain is, fills everyone's life. And I act often like pain isn't filling everyone's life. And it leads me to be very unmerciful to people. And how loving would it be for God to fill my head so full of snot that it makes me want to die so that I could understand what it's like when people really are dying or really hurting or when their life is incredibly disappointing or when they feel diminished by something because I don't. I'm too shallow. And so I need God's painful diminishing for me to really empathetically understand what mercy looks like. And it's, that's really embarrassing. And I just wish I wasn't that shallow and weak a person. But when I go back to think about that nobody lives or dies apart from God's sovereignty, 
And that Romans 8 says that all things must work for my good to those who are called according to his purpose. And that if God is for me, who can stand against me? And, and I look at what is actually said by the eyewitnesses and by the apostles themselves, and I stand on that sure knowledge, and I wonder, what should I be reminded of if I try to stand on the truths firmly? And what would that do in and through me and for me? I realize it's totally different than how I would react. And we need that process every day. That's, what's, that's what the Bible calls believing the gospel. Realizing what reaction is saying. Letting the truth of memory come up with conscience and the work of the Spirit. Realizing what is actually true and on what foundation it sits. Accepting it. Admitting that we were wrong and believing the truth and allowing it to reform us to think wholesomely about that truth and how it should be embedded in our character, and then to embrace it as fully as we can until we forget it. <laughs> and because we'll forget it in seven minutes, we need to constantly put ourselves in the way of reminder. It's why we worship every week together. That's why we print Bibles that we can take home and read. That's why we have small groups during the week. It says in the Bible that Christians met day to day. And so people had Christ Christians in their life, close spiritual friendships, because they're things that we need to be reminded of every day. Or we need a reminder close by when something happens. It's one of the reasons why we have, we have growth classes. So that we can go and learn and be reminded of things that we've forgotten. And it's it's the reason why we have elders that do church discipline. It's the, it's the reason that we do everything that we do. So that what we are constantly forgetting, we can constantly be reminded of. By constantly being reminded of, we can be set on that firm foundation, and we can be stimulated and reminded to wholesome thinking about it. We can be drawn back to the eyewitness truths and their basis in our lives, so that we'll ask on the basis of them, if these things are true, how then should we live? which would lead us to the conclusion that somehow we have to seek godliness, which leads us back to his divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Which will lead us back to gracious striving, being all the more eager to make our calling and election sure. So that what Peter said, I'm going to tell you until they kill me, so that after I'm gone, you will remember it. I can turn and say to you, or if you're older than me in the faith, you can say to me, I'm going to keep reminding you until I die or they kill me, so that after I'm God, you will remember it. And those younger than me, I can say to you, I'm going to tell you until they kill me or I die, so that after I'm gone, you will have been reminded of these things enough to be firmly established in them and remind others. God, as we come um, and we sing this last song together that talks about your returning in power and glory, would you bring back to our mind that you showed your majesty to Peter, that he was an eyewitness of it, that that grounded the firm truths of life after death and your providence over our lives, that that leads us back to knowing that you've given us everything we need for godliness and that we should make every effort 
to add to faith, goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and so on. Would you um, reconvince us of the truth that just as true as it is that Jesus rose from the dead, and just as true as it is that death is not the end, and just as true as it is that Jesus will return, it is as true that you have given us everything we need to actually be like Jesus. That we have not yet dreamed of the magnificence of the, of the person you can make us if we would participate in the divine nature through faith and through your power and a knowledge of Christ to escape the corruptions of the world, that by the means of your precious promises, we'd be able to live with courage and glory and wisdom and humility until we forget and have to be reminded again. In Jesus' name, amen.